And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tiberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like a coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it, and ground it in hand mills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots, and made cakes out of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should come, that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom, as a nurse carries a nursing child, to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me, and they say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. And bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt." Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am number 600,000 on foot, and you've said, I'll give them meat that they may eat a whole month? Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hands shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. 
Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those who registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. And then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered, those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hata'ava, because there they had buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hata'ava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. You may be seated. Well, after that, we can probably just go home. <clears throat> Well, good morning again. We continue in our Eating with the Word sermon series that we're in this fall, studying Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we've pictured it sort of like the three stages of a dinner party or having somebody over for dinner. You prepare everything, you actually eat, and then usually if it's a good dinner party, you sit around and, and share stories and you know, news and different things like that. So it's kind of like Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Last month in Leviticus was all about the details and the preparations and getting ready for God. This month in Numbers is about the eating, receiving, chewing, meditating on the promises, warnings, laws, poems, and stories that God gives us, eating the word that he provides. And we rejoin the Israelites. Last week, Clayton talked about Uh, uh, Numbers 9, 10, that's embarrassing, Numbers 9, and uh, the first 10 chapters of Numbers are one of the more um, boring parts of Scripture, if you ever have read it, and you should, should. I mean, that's the point of today's sermon, you should read it, but uh, the people just do everything God says. God says something, the people do it over and over and over again for 10 chapters, and it's like, okay, well, great. And if you stopped reading the book of Numbers at chapter 10, you'd think, well, that's perfect. They're going to make it to the promised land. Everything's going to go fine. But then we come to Numbers chapter 11, where the wheels fall off. What ought to have been a two-week trek or so between Sinai and the Jordan River winds up taking them 
40 years before they actually enter the promised land. Something obviously goes terribly wrong on the way. The people fail spectacularly to receive what the Lord wants to give them. And I don't know, I don't think this has ever actually happened to me, but if you've ever had somebody, I've been with other people that it's happened to, that when you have people over for dinner and they just won't eat the thing that you made for them, it's kind of a terrible feeling, a very quick story. So I, one of my Chinese friends, Tony, whom you, I, most of you have met, he's the short one, Ding is the tall one. So Tony was here a few years ago visiting, and we went to a friend's house in Champaign-Urbana, your parents' house, actually, um, not to call you out, but, um, and Tony had already made known, and I've talked before about how he hated cheese, you may remember that, right, and every time we go out to eat pizza, he was doing that because he loved me, and you know, what a great saint Tony is. We also knew that he hated Mexican food, because Mexican food features a, a whole lot of cheese, and so we show up at my friend's house, we're visiting, whatever, and the mom goes, well, great, well, I made tacos, and Tony you know, he doesn't skip a beat. He just looks at her and goes, I hate Mexican food and I will not eat any of it. <laughs> so then the host gave him so many tacos that they came out of his nose. No, no, no. But that uh, we recovered. We recovered. The people complain in Numbers chapter 11 and the fire of Yahweh burns the edges, the fringes of the camp. The people want more than the manna, right? And it's funny when you read this, at least I think it's funny, you know, they say we only have this manna to look at. They can't even bring themselves to say that they eat it. And then I think it's also kind of funny that the narrator tells us all the different ways they tried to make the manna in pots and hand mills, you know. They are trying to make the best out of it, but they were sick of the manna. Moses gets angry that he wants to die. God extends the Holy Spirit's anointing that, that Moses had to the other elders so that leadership can be shared. And God sends quail, a tremendous number of quail. But as they begin to gorge themselves, or not even as, they don't even actually get to eat any of it, they just, by the time it gets into their mouths, God strikes them with a plague. Numbers 11 is a sad story. And most of the book from here on out is a sad story of desire not just for the wrong thing, but for something else besides the good thing that has already been given. And the word craving is the key to the chapter. The people crave the food they had in Egypt in verse 4, and they are buried in graves of craving at the end of the chapter in verse 34. So it's not only wanting something you don't have, but wanting something else in comparison to the good thing you've already got. Numbers, like all of scripture, is a mirror. We use it to reflect and to see how Jesus is at work to transform and deliver us. We will all spend time wandering in a, in a wilderness when God brings us out of a bad situation to take us somewhere better. We have to trust him on the way, walking on the path of his promises. And really, I think that's a picture for the entire life of faith. Each of us who belong to Jesus have been rescued from the dominion of darkness, the slavery to sin. We have been promised a new heavens and a new earth. That's where we're headed. But in the meantime, we have to travel across decades of desert. 
And the Lord is with us. We've seen miracles. He provides for our needs. Those things are true of us as well. But it's also true that we carry the wreckage. We carry the damage of our slavery with us still. We complain when we shouldn't. We despise the good things that God has provided. We crave what kills. In a big picture sense, we want to sin. And I think that, you know, different of us struggle with different things, right? I don't really want to sin the way that somebody else does. I think they're a bad person for doing that. But then there's things in my life that are wicked and evil that I want to do. I want to ride along with death, even though we know it will hurt us. We lie to ourselves that what God has for us is not enough. There are a million ways that that intersects with our lives. I mean, we could talk about all kinds of things. I'm just going to talk about one. Because the theme of this month is eating with the word and receiving the word, I want to talk about how we think about and treat the Bible. That may not seem like a high-stakes issue, but I think that that just proves the point that I intend to make. In large part, our struggle to read, listen to, and really absorb the scriptures is because we wish it was something other than what it is. And I'll say more about that in a few minutes. What I hope to set before you this morning is that despite the Israelites' cravings for other food, a craving that proved to be fatal, the Lord was providing for them. What he had given them was better than what they wanted. And our sermon summary is this. The Lord gives us what we need for the journey, and what we need is the Bible. The Lord gives us what we need for the journey, and what we need is the Bible. We read in verse 1, and verse ten, if it's chapter 10, if you just want to skim it, it's, it's, it's a good chapter. They march when God says to march. They stop when God says to, to stop. Moses sings a song about that. Everything's happy. And the very next thing that happens, chapter 11, verse 1, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. This is one of those cosmic facepalm moments that happens occasionally in the Bible Adam and Eve in the garden, Noah getting drunk after the flood, the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. Things were going really well. God was with us. Things were back on track. And then everything flies off the rails. And this is a tremendous verse because, as we've been reading and listening, the only misfortunes that have happened to them have happened due to their own wrongdoing. Right? Only because of disobedience have bad things happened to the Israelites so far. And yet, they complain. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And the fire of the Lord, we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school, the fire of the Lord has been present throughout the story, ever since Yahweh appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and kind of got the whole thing started. This bush, this shrub was burning, but it was not consumed. And it turns out that that was a hint to God's ultimate purpose with this whole thing was to make people who could be on fire but not consumed, who were holy as he is holy, who could become like God. And we see the progression of Yahweh's fire throughout the Bible. It starts with the bush, then it's on Mount Sinai, then it's on the tabernacle with them and their wanderings, and eventually, as we Clayton talked about last week, it comes down on the church at Pentecost as tongues of flame above all of them. But we've also seen the fire of Yahweh break out in wrath against the Egyptians, against rebel priests, 
and now against the fringes of the camp. So obviously the project of making holy people is not quite complete. And the easy and wrong way to read this story or other stories like it, the tales of terror and wrath in the Old Testament, the point would be read your Bibles or God will kill you, right? That's not the point. We are meant to see our own twisted hearts reflected in the Israelites. Numbers 11 wants us to grapple with the seriousness of our sin and with God's righteous wrath to destroy evil and oppose the henchmen of death. But we need to view both of those things in the light of Christ's death on the cross. Christ took our place and experienced God's wrath towards our sin. This was not a mistake or a surprise, but it was what God had intended all along. Human sin, all of it, was judged in the body of Jesus on the cross so that we can have freedom. We don't live under threat anymore. And so a story like like Numbers 11 is not about avoiding punishment, right? Read your Bible or God will kill you. No, no, no. It's about transformation, becoming God's people, the invitation from the Lord to be formed but not consumed by his fire. Continue on in verse 4. The rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember all of the good snacks we had you know, when we were bound to slavery and died all the time because the Egyptians kept killing us, but the food was really great. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. The people had food. Their needs were being met. But they began to crave something besides what they already had. And the manna really is a foreshadowing of Jesus himself, and I think of also the written word that reveals him to us. And for many of us, engaging meaningfully with the Bible is a struggle, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think that when it comes down to it, and I don't know if many of us would ever say this, but we wish, honestly, that we just had a different Bible than the book that we actually have. I think you can see this in a lot of different ways. A lot of us like to watch videos about the Bible, myself included, Bible Project. They're great. Check it out because it's colorful, entertaining, and it makes it easy, but that's not the Bible. Or we, some of us like to read these books about these little boys or paramedics or whatever who die and go to heaven for 15 minutes, and we love those things. We're very eager about those sorts of books, far more eager than we are about the Bible itself. Or if you've ever noticed, I mean, you know, I know I'm weird, but sometimes I go to bookstores or things like that, and I just survey all the different kinds of Bibles there are. Have you ever wondered, why are there? Not, I'm not talking about translations, but why are there? Why is there a golfer's Bible and a new mother's Bible and an old mother's Bible and a patriot's Bible and a badminton Bible and a bacon lover's Bible? And you know what I mean. It just keeps going and going. It's like, what are they doing? Well, it's because the publishers have figured out that you're not really buying the Bible. You're buying the little articles and the things that all surround the Bible so they can repackage it and sell it to you again. Anyway, that's a, a bit of an aside. I think many of us connect with God better through singing than we do with reading the Bible. Or by taking a walk in the woods than by reading the Bible. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think it's worth thinking about and considering What's going on there? The word that God has given us, and if you've read any of it, including the chapter we just did, so you already know, the word that God has given us is frequently embarrassing. Notice, those of you who follow the reading plan, often, not often, but occasionally there will be chapters that we just skip 
because we don't want to have to deal with any of your questions about the really weird things that happen. It's frequently embarrassing. It's confusing. A lot of it's boring. It's very strange. The Bible does not fit well into our shortened attention spans. I had Clayton intentionally read the entire chapter 11 of Numbers because I knew it would make us feel a little antsy. When can we stop listening to the word of God? Wouldn't it be a better book without all the foreign names, the geography lessons, the nightmarish visions, the endless lists of what's-his-name begot so-and-so? A few weeks ago, we read 2 Timothy at Young Adult Group, the whole thing, which probably would have been fine except that Paul names so many people in that letter that we completely lost track of what he was trying to say because we were laughing too much at how each of us was mispronouncing all of these ancient Greek names. Phygelus, Hermogenes, Onesephorus, Tychicus. Who are these people? Why did Paul include that? Wouldn't it have been better for him to leave it out? We want the Bible to be something other than it is. We want it to be relevant to us, right? What does that have to do with me? We want it to answer our questions. We want it to meet our needs. And to some extent, that's not bad, right? We know that it's the word of God, and so we bring our needs and our questions to it, and that in itself is not a bad thing. But when it turns out that the Bible refuses to be our divine fortune cookie, and we have a hard time reading it, that's when it becomes a problem. Rarely do we consider that we're asking the wrong questions. What kind of snake was in the garden? It doesn't matter. The Bible's not interested in that question or that our needs are ill-formed. We're bringing the wrong needs to scripture. The Lord has given us what we need for the journey in the Bible, but we often struggle to want the thing that he's given. In verse 20, we find out the Israel's uh, real sin here because it goes beyond just the complaint. Yes, they were complaining. That wasn't a good thing. Yes, they were failing to trust. That's not a good thing either. But I think that the anger from the Lord comes, the judgment of the Lord comes, because the Israelites start to wish that the exodus had not happened. Go back to verse 18. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not just eat one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month. Sounds like a commercial for Arby's, until it comes out your nostrils and it becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Their hearts have been so twisted by craving that they want to reverse God's great work of redemption and salvation. What madness sin can sometimes drive us to. When all we want the Bible to be is a set of instructions, we are reversing the good work that God accomplished in Christ on the cross and in the empty tomb. When all we want to do is check off items on the good person list so we can feel good about ourselves and feel even better because we're better than those people, we're actually craving God's judgment because we will never be good people by trying to follow the rules. Most of the rules we can't even follow anymore. The Pharisees tried that, and it did not go well. And consider the great harm the church has done the global church has done by trying to make everyone follow the right rules. We don't read this book to find out what we need to do. We read this book to find out what has already been done by the Son of God on our behalf. As Paul says in Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
The Bible is about Jesus, and it makes no sense without him. This is why even though we read a passage that does not mention the word Jesus, we talk about him the entire time. There are certainly implications for our behavior and our politics and our finances and our consumption. Of course there are. Jesus gives us commands, but they flow out from the announcement that he is the king over all things. In fact, the Bible is full of really bad advice if Jesus is not the king of all things. The Israelites craved what killed them. For the Israelites, the good advice was that they should return to Egypt. Why stay out here in the wilderness, in the dangerous presence of God, only eating manna when they could gorge on the smorgasbord back in slavery? You see, the thing about advice, good advice, and you know, I'm not speaking against advice. I like giving people advice. I think most of us like giving people advice. The receiving the advice, maybe not, but... This is necessarily don't give advice anymore, but when we want the Bible to only be advice, it undercuts God's promises and turns us away from our promised destination. Advice is about building heaven on earth, making your best life now, sort of like the Tower of Babel. Again, it didn't go well for them. Many other people have to be taken advantage of in order for you to get whatever you want whenever you want it. Advice is often a heavy burden for those of you who've ever tried to do something and needed help, whether that's cooking something or fixing something, and just a million people are suddenly around you saying, well, do that, do this, do that. Advice is often a heavy burden, the opposite of what Jesus promised us. And many people are trapped in guilt and shame because they think the Bible is a book of advice that they do not have the power to obey. And they're right about that. You don't have the power to obey. The truth is that enough good advice kills. Verse 33 says, While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Graves of Craving, because there they buried the people who had the craving. We want a Bible whose every page is immediately relevant to our lives. But God actually gave us something better than that. Good advice is something that you can take or leave. You don't have to do it. It's just advice. But good news is true, whether you believe it or not. Advice can help you light the fire, but it can't stop the bush from burning up. Advice cannot transform us. Only Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, working through the word he has given us, can do that. What the creator has given us in the Bible, more than instructions and rules, more than nice quotes to include on an Instagram caption, is the long story of the good news of what he has done in Jesus to save and restore and rescue all mankind. It won't always feel relevant to your life because it's not about you. Read, listen to it, whether you understand all of it or not. You don't have to be understand. You don't have to understand in order to be transformed. The invitation stands open for each of us to learn from Jesus and encounter him in this slow, complicated, weird story. He will grant you understanding in his time. 
I think we've seen that happening even in the last month as we've studied Leviticus together. The Lord gives us what we need for the journey, and what we need is the Bible, and really what we need is Jesus revealed to us in the Bible. We all have struggles, circumstances that need changed, relationships that need reconciled, decisions that need wisdom, brokenness that needs fixed, bondage that cries out for freedom. We turn to Jesus and ask him for advice, but he won't give it to us. Jesus faced a similar situation to Numbers 11, uh, recorded in John chapter 6. And he multiplies the loaves and fishes. He feeds a huge multitude of people. And so the next day, understandably, free food is hard to beat. The people ask him to do it again. But Jesus does not give them what they want. He offers them something better. Himself. John chapter 6, verse 34 says, They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Brothers and sisters, more advice will not get you to the promised land. Trying to work out your own salvation by your own effort and ability is like putting makeup on a corpse. It does not deal with the fundamental problem. Only resurrection does that. And in Jesus, revealed in the word of God, as the word of God, we have access to the resources of God's kingdom. By the generous power of the Holy Spirit, let us be transformed by the word of God, so that his fire can burn in us as love and holiness and not as destruction and judgment. Let us absorb the word, whether by reading or listening, whether every day or a few times a week or once or twice a week, I don't care about any of that. But let us be absorbing and receiving and trusting the promises, the warnings, the commands of the Lord. John 6 continues that after Jesus said this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They went back to Egypt, so to speak. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Here's the exit ramp, boys. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Church, may we trust that the Lord has given us what we need for the journey, and may we freshly receive the words of eternal life and be transformed. Amen.